0: Would you pray with me, gracious Lord? We are grateful to be gathered to be gathered tonight on this Monday evening. And we've returned to the Book of Revelation, and and um, so far it's been pretty pretty straightforward, really, and and filled with a lot of joy and and worship. Um, and tonight, as we embark on the opening of the seals, we just pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would open these pages up for us and and make us. Um, help us to understand what, what John has given us in, in these visions of his. And help us to grasp how the, we're given these to bring us assurance and encouragement, um, even in the darkest of times. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so when we were coming to class, so Charles Whitley leaned over to me and said, Well, I guess I guess you're serving the meat tonight. And I looked at him, I was thinking, what is over on the food bar that I missed? <laughs> but but now he was being very metaphorical in the f- sense that we are getting now to the parts of Revelation that, that utterly fascinates people, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so... We'll talk about most of this in context, but I just want to remind you that it is, it's a mistake to read Revelation as if it were a movie script. It's not a movie script. If you try to read it as a movie script, you're constantly be asking, well, what's going on? Didn't this just happen? What? And you rob the book, uh, you rob God's word of its power and its poetry and its strength so so, so, don't be overly literal okay there's There's lots of parts of the Bible that are not to be read as if it were you know a movie script or something that you could get in a time machine and go find it's when when you do that you just you rob the liter- you rob the biblical writers of so many tools that all of us use that Jesus uses himself when he talks about that he is the gate or the door or something you know they're just metaphors Jesus tells parables they're filled with metaphors he, every parables a metaphor so so I will try to introduce this to you in a way that will help you to to read Revelation um, that in a way that you might not have before and in a way that I think you'll see much more satisfying and and much more like what you think God would do for you. Because God's purpose is never, is never to scare the crap out of you. Okay? It's just not. God, God wants, God loves you and God wants you to love Him. And you can't make somebody genuinely love you by scaring him to death. You can't threaten them. You can't bribe them. You can get them to act like it, but who wants that? You want the real deal. God wants the real deal. Now, we can talk about whether you could scare somebody into repenting, and, and maybe I would go that far. Okay, because I did watch. Remember when they had the things in prison that would be like scared straight? I was scared straight and I was just watching it on a TV set. <laughs> you know, much less actually there in the prison or something. But, but the Christian life, coming to God is so much more than just repentance. Repentance is the part. (laughs) Repentance is is committing yourself to embark on a new way of living. But it is your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, it is your love of Christ, it is your love of God that is God's goal in all of this. Because if that's real and genuine, the rest of it will will follow. So, um, let's just review for a minute where we've been. Um, we had the opening chapter, the opening vision of Jesus in which John, the, the writer here, is given his mission. We had the letters to seven actual real-life churches and we saw that each one of those, um, we could find ourselves somewhere in each one of those letters and I could certainly preach a sermon on each one of them. You could probably preach a couple sermons on each one of them and without being repetitious. And then we moved in to the first great vision in chapters 4 and 5. Just these majestic chapters. God is in His throne room. He is surrounded by the heavenly host. He is surrounded by 24 elders who probably represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. There are four cherubim there who are guarding and they're the watchers and they're covered in eyes and everybody is singing holy, 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 lifting up God, praising God and it's all full of joy and, and, and then you realize that something is terribly wrong. Because in God's hand there is a scroll with seven seals. And when John asks, well, what's wrong? They say, there is no one worthy to open the scroll. No one worthy to open the seals. And they need to be opened. They are the, they are the launching pad, right? Right? for God's restoration and renewal of God's creation. That's where the book ends. Everything else is just getting there. The book ends with the renewal and restoration of all of creation and humanity, so the the seals and the scroll that they seal up, that's sitting in God's hand, that can't be opened, it's it's just tragic and people are weeping and John is weeping. and, And then one of the elders walks over to John and whispers in his ear, see the Lion of Judah. Of course, strength, power, the Lion of Judah, King David, mighty, strong. The Lion of Judah will be able to open the scroll. And John turns, I add the turn part, does not, but <laughs> that's because how I see it. So John turns, expecting to see what? David, the Lion of Judah, mighty warriors. And he sees instead a lamb, that looks as if it has been slain. And we're told that the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And so then the Lamb goes over and takes the scroll out of God's hand and then the heavenly hosts sing the praises of the Lamb. The Lamb is the one who is worthy. And because the Lamb is worthy now, we can begin. And the parts that's coming up that freak people out is the fact that it's filled with a lot of images of terror and wrath. Okay? And we we don't much like that. Right? So what you... I think a hundred years ago Christians had a lot more trouble with this, understandably, 105 years ago, understandably, than we sh- should now. We should not have too much problem with this. We have all li- we ha- we all lived through a significant amount of the 20th century when humans used technology to do what to kill more humans than had ever been thought possible. What did the industrial age create? Sure, it created clean water and better living conditions and so forth, but we also were able to create armies and weapons on an industrial scale that had just never even been contemplated in the history of humanity. And we unleashed it on one another, and the consequence of it all was that just tens of millions, hundreds of millions, were humans were killed by other humans. Is there not a lot in this world that God should be angry about, on a big scale and on a little scale? Every child that's taken, every child that's murdered, every shouldn't should God be overflowing with anger, righteous anger about that? And these people are living in a time. When the Roman Empire strides across the world, wielding wielding its might, people go to um, arenas to watch other people get slaughtered and murdered by animals and by warriors and... The Christians have been shunned and some of them, we met a man named Antipas in one of the seven letters, I can't remember which one, who has been martyred. We know that there were others. We know that Nero had persecuted Christians 30 years or so before the writing of this. So the Christians are familiar with being a persecuted people. And it may be in ways that are large and small, sometimes it involves blood, other times not. But it's a hard world. It's a difficult world. It's a violent world. We, in Plano or wherever you live, we have no clue what this world was really like. You might, if if this world was really depicted on a movie screen, you couldn't watch it. You know? Even the movies that tried to come close, they, they still have to clean it up a little bit. It's too apparent. This world is violent, vastly oversexualized. Everybody worried about their sons. They worried about their daughters. There were no fire departments. There were no police. None of that. Rome didn't view it as their job to take care of you, or to protect you, or to save you from predators, or to keep somebody from robbing you, murdering you, or anything. No, none of that. Now we're going to meet tonight some souls, some saints, who are going to wonder just how long are we going to have to wait for God to come in and put things right? That's the question. How long? How long will it take for God to step in and put things right? And what is going to happen between now and then? And Anyway, that's my little impassioned introduction. (laughs) Okay? This is what I like about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation should make you passionate of nothing else. It's meant to... Arouse you. It's meant to speak to your whole sense to your sensibilities. He intends to shock you sometimes. Okay, so we're we can be good with all of that. So, anything before we go to chapter six, verse one is where we're going to start. Well, Scott, yes, you mentioned you just referred them to one hundred and five years ago. Were you backing up to the start of World War? I? Bingo, the start of the World War World War. <laughs> What am I saying? (laughs) The First World War wrecked all kinds of sensibilities in Europe, and America, about the nature of things because until then, they thought they were kind of on this upward track. If you read John Dewey or others, they thought, well, we're getting there, you know, we're getting there. We're going to finally live this world of peace and justice. And the First World War, in which an entire generation of Germans, French, Englishmen were all wiped out that destroyed all of that. And then where did they find themselves basically fighting the second half of the same war, really, is what the Second World War was. And it's just onward from there. So, yes, that's what I meant. See, I started, say, 100 years ago, and then the the Picayune historic history person in myself said, no, Scott, it's not 100 years, it's maybe more like 105, and a couple of months maybe thrown in there. You just have to excuse me, it's how I am, it's just how I am. Patty has to live with me. So, (laughs) yes, Bob Bob is pointing out that you're a saint, dear. Yes, thank you, Bob. Okay, so chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I watch, so who's watching? John, right, John, this is John's vision, that he is putting down on words. Don't think that you can take the words and you can take those in your brain and picture in your mind what John sees. He's going to use words like I'm seeing and it's sort of like this and so forth, but there's distance between John's vision and your processing 2,000 years later his words. Does that make sense? kind of has to be that way. I mean, how else could you do it? I'm not sure if John was a great artist. He could even put on paper or with paint what he is saying. So instead, what he does is he grounds himself in countless Old Testament images, all of which have meaning. Okay? So. I watched, John writes, as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals, because that scroll that was in God's hand and the lamb is the one worthy to open, that scroll is sealed with seven seals, which means completeness, fullness. It is well sealed. <laughs> then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, This is one of the cherubs, one of the cherubim, okay? one of the living creatures, say, in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, like, you know, kings wear, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So why? A, so we, we, we get this one. It's obviously a warrior image, conquering, conquest, kings. What are kings? Kings are warriors, in this world. And the bow is there probably because the great, I'm not gonna put this. The great boogeyman of the Roman Empire was the Parth, were the Parthians, and the Parthians lived out east of like Israel. As you approach India, that's where, the, that's where the Parthians were. And the Parthians were a people who were never conquered by Rome. Hadn't been by now, won't be. And they were famous for their accuracy and skill with a bow while riding horseback. That's what made them so deadly. They would ride on horse, a little bit like um, a lot of centuries later, um, Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun and stuff had skill. They developed their people. Developed some of those same skills, but but that's probably who is in view here. That these this is the great, the great you know boogeyman of Rome, the Parthians. So that's the first horse. Pretty straightforward, really. Conquering, conquest, war. All right. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "Come." Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Alright, I would submit that that's pretty straightforward in terms of understanding what John has conveyed to you. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, you do it with me, come. <laughs> <I> lo- <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales, like you would weigh things on in, in a marketplace. Or like when I was a kid, you go to the butcher shop, I guess you still do that. Anything I buy at the butcher now is carefully wrapped in plastic with a sticker on it that tells me exactly how much it weighs. But if I remember the old days, the butcher would start to pile meat on a scale, and when you got what you wanted, he stopped. So he's got a pair of scales in, in his hand, the writer does. And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, this is the best way this could be translated, two quarts of wheat for a day's wages and Um, three quarts of barley or one quart and three quarts. The the pound thing that the NIV thing uses is confusing to me because it makes me think it's too much. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages or one quart of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds or three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, which is really good advice, I think, but <laughs> I don't care that much about the oil part, but um, okay, so this one. Okay, so what I will tell you is if you go back into the Greek and you look at the weights and measures and you look at it in their day, this is rider is bringing great economic distress because the amount that a day's wages can buy is not enough to support a family. It's maybe a tenth of what you would need. Or you could think of it the reverse. Inflation has gone crazy, right? And so um, and damaging the oil and the wine probably refers to not having enough money to even think about getting something like that. But it's clearly, cl- everybody understands that it is clearly a rider bringing out economic distress, economic hardship. The scales, the weights, the whole thing. Okay, so so far what do we have? We got war, we got violence, and we got economic hardship. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living, the voice of the fourth living creature say, oh. I didn't even help you that time. <laughs> I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. <laughs> How much literature is that spread across? A rider on a pale horse. A pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades, the place of the dead, the god of the underworld, both are true. Hades was following close behind him. So it's like death and death, 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 and death following close behind them. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay. So we had war, violence, economic hardship, and now death. There's a famous artist who lived, I don't know, 500 years ago, Albrecht Durer, who made a lot of woodcuts of... Uh, Biblical depictions and a lot from Revelation and he depicts the four horses this way. He has the first horse further away, the second horse closer, the third horse closer, and the rider on the pale horse right there in front of the viewer. Because in his view, as you move from horse to horse, you get closer to something you can't avoid. You might not be swept up in war, better chance you'll be swept up in violence of some kind, but if you skip that, you're probably gonna be caught up in economic hardship. And who cheats death? Nobody cheats death. Now let me ask you a question about these four horsemen. This is the real, we professionals call this the interpretive key. Or some kind of BS like that. So, so So, all right, so, which of these riders is bringing something that isn't already here aplenty? Do we need a rider on a horse to bring us war? Violence. Economic hardship. I know where we live and we're thinking but think back to 2008 okay or further back than that okay do we need a horse we need a rod and a horse to bring us death No, nobody skips death right right they're not bringing anything that isn't already here I've all long thought that Part of the way to understand this is to ask yourself what can I protect myself from? Have we been able to build armies large enough to put an end to war? Have we been able to build police forces large enough to end violence? Have we been able to build Federal Reserves large enough to end economic hardship? Central banks? No. Has anybody figured out how to avoid death at some point? No. We all die. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much power you have. I don't care what you have. Death is going to get you. There is nobody who isn't caught up in these four horsemen. And they are a dramatic way of conveying to us all that is wrong in this world. This is a world plagued by war, by violence, economic distress, and by death. Look at the last, look at the last sentence in, um, well, the end of paragraph 8. So this is, Death and Hades were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild beasts. The people of this world were familiar with all four. Plagues. There were terrible plagues which swept through the ancient world from time to time, slaughtering a quarter of the population or more. Whole cities basically emptied by plague, by famine. Oh my gosh. It's famine that drives um, uh, Jacob's family to Egypt, right? In the book of Genesis. So so famine is something that they are well acquainted with. Um, it's just it's a dramatic way of helping you see the world as it as it is. And it needs to not be this way. I just read a quote, this is a quote from Prince I don't know if it was Prince Harry or Prince William. You might have seen the quote. He said, what we just need to do in this world is we need to end human greed, apathy, and selfishness. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, hoo I'm up for that project. Let's go, let's just get that done. Okay, so see, this is where Christians have a voice in the world. We're the ones who can say to the world, yes, great, but you're not going to do it. We are not going to rescue ourselves. And yet, we humans run around thinking that they can do just that. And this book is filled with people who think they can do just that. They got enough money, they got enough power, they're kings, they're rich, they're wealthy, whatever. Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Until the rider on the pale horse shows up and they realize, wow, me too. Of course, me too. All right, so that's my take on the four horsemen. What are you, what's your take? What questions, thoughts, reflections of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? It's clearly very, very powerful imagery, isn't it? Because everybody always wants to talk about the four horsemen, because it's just like the colors and how ah, it's awesome. Yeah? If, if this was read to... They would understand it better than we do. They're the ones who live with plagues and famines and economic distress and war and violence in ways that we can sort of try to insulate ourselves from. Sure, sure. They would get that. They would know who the people on the bow are. I think they would they would read that as the Parthians. So they, they would get that. They would understand that they are finding themselves smack dab in a world filled with all this stuff. Violence and wars and plagues and famine and you know uh, economic hardships and, in the end, death, right? I'm leading my Tuesday class through Romans right now. We've just gotten to Romans 5. Where we're going to talk about death, right? Death enters the picture as a consequence of human sin. And so it is sin that underlies this whole thing. Which we will see. You'll see it, that's what the book is going to be playing out for us. So, other questions or comments? Uh, yes. Um, it seems to me is it's a little ironic, though, that you have to wait for the pure lamb, one perfect you know, child of God, to unleash all of this um, world that you might have used any one of a dozen or so really horrible people to unleash these things. Well, I think my point, Mike, is that <coughs> you... You don't really have to wait for this to be unleashed. That's what we've been doing. It's been unleashed for the course of human history. It's been unleashed. Death isn't waiting to be unleashed. Death is with us every day. Jody's friend, right? Death is with us every day. So that's why we tend to see it as a countdown clock and somebody's going to go boom, start. And now here come the horsemen and so now we have war and now we have violence and now we got death. No, no, they've they've always been here. And why is the lamb in the visions the one worthy to open the scroll that nobody else could? Because it is a way to elevate the lamb, to put the lamb at the center of everything. When this has been depicted, there's an artist whose name I'm not going to recall, who did a six-panel piece um, of this vision of the throne room in 4 and 5. And what is at the very center of the vision? Everything? even at the center before the throne, is the Lamb. Because the Lamb is the one who is worthy. And so that, that, that's what I think is going on. It's a lifting up the Lamb, and now we're being, in a very dramatic way, we're going to see what's wrong with this world and awaits God's judgment. How about that? But I don't think we should see it all just as something as something that isn't here yet. Uh, Other thoughts? Is there a significance that there's only four horses and seven seals? Because there's more seals to go. So the horses are the first four seals. So we've got the fifth, sixth, and seventh seal to go. Why four horses? I don't know. No magic other than, I don't know. It sounds really good and... Weren't there four running backs at Notre Dame or something way back in the day? The four, right? The four horsemen? What, am, I, am I wrong? I mean, that's, that's even before my day, and that is saying something. <laughs> that is saying something. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yes. It just seems like all of these things, in my limited knowledge of history, they just keep rotating. They just keep happening. This is the, it's like it's the state of the world. It's like God is looking down and all we do is trade one war for another, one violence for another. In fact, all we do is get better at it, actually, right? We can kill more, oh, we can kill more people now. This is the bigger bomb, right? And, and so, yeah, so God looks down and it's, it's like, that's why I, I think you'll find the book a lot more satisfying if you get out of it a little bit, and and not and not insist upon reading it as step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, because there's places the book collapses in that something's gone, then it's back, and then it's gone again, because it's not that way. It's more like it, it's it's circular but heading somewhere. So it, if you picture a wheel turning, yeah, the wheel's turning, but it's not like oh like spinners are those. You remember those people with big cars would get these things on their hubcaps called spinners or whatever? First time I saw one of those, I was so confused because it looked like the car was going somewhere, but it was actually just sitting there, but the wheel was spinning, and I was like, what the heck? So if you picture, if, if you picture wheels turning, fine, but the, but the, but the car is going somewhere. Because where's the car going? The car is going to Revelation 21 and 22, which is the restoration of all things. So we're headed somewhere. Yes? Any theories or significance of the colors of the horse? I don't think so. I've never seen anything in the colors that I found particularly compelling. I think they're just part of the art. The the pale horse is very, I mean, that's very cool. Right? I mean, it's just, it's no wonder it's captured people's imaginations. Death, the pale horse, it just, ah, it's just like perfect. Okay, anything else? Okay, so we have some more seals to do, my friends. Ready? Verse 9. When he, who's the he, opened the fifth seal? The The Lamb. See, you don't have to ask yourself, you know, how a lamb opens seals on a scroll. That would be get, that would be blowing up the art of, of poor John here. John is working hard on this. So, <laughs> when he, the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. What altar is that? Where, where is John now? He's up in the throne room. So this is the altar, like the altar of God. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So who are the souls whose souls are under the altar? The souls of the martyrs. Martyr is a word... It comes in, in Greek it simply means witness. So in these writings, the word hasn't taken on all the connotation that it would later on. And so when you come across the word martyr in this writing or elsewhere, these are witnesses to Christ in their faithfulness, like Christ, all the way to death. Right? So these are martyrs. Um uh, martyr. Christians who have been slain for the faith. That's that's what the image is. They had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They hadn't they hadn't they hadn't backed off. They maintained their devotion. They maintained their testimony. They maintained their witnessing to Jesus all the way to the end until their death. And now their soul is under the altar because indeed. Death is not our end. Death isn't anybody's end. Death wasn't their end. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long, how long, how long, God, until you do something, until you act and judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Now, Christians often recoil at this particular verse because they don't like the idea of vengeance. And let me tell you where I come from on that. First of all, there are things that need to be avenged. Second thing, we are to leave that to God. But it's a lie to think we never want it. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. Turn to, put up. we're going to do a little bit of this tonight. Turn to Psalm 139. If I don't have this exactly right in my old age... We'll find out in a second. I meant to say Psalm 137. I just (laughs) casually misspoke there. This is Psalm 137. Okay, okay. So this is a song written by people who have been ripped out of their homes and shipped a thousand miles away to a life in exile in Babylon with no prospect of ever coming home. Who knows how many of their family members were killed? Who knows, who knows, who knows? And this is the song they sing. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered home, Zion. There on the trees along the river we hung up our harps. Our captors asked us to sing songs. They demanded we sing songs, but... How can we, this is verse 4 now, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what they did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Never saw that one before. Never heard a sermon on that one, have you? It, psalms like that remind you that you can be honest with God. God knows your heart already. There are times when we want vengeance. We aren't to take it, but that doesn't mean you don't wish you could. And so the souls under the altar cry for judgment, right? They want God to exercise God's righteous judgment, and they desire, they desire vengeance. They want, they want things put right. They have suffered. They they, they have died. So I, I, I understand that. But I think the most operative words in that verse are these. How long, how long, how long. The book of Revelation will end with Maranatha. Which basically means come, come Jesus, come Lord, come Lord Jesus. How many times do you think those words have come out of the mouths of Christians over the centuries? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe. Purity, joy, celebration, The resurrected Christ is in white. White became the symbol of baptism for the Christians. Each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. Until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And now you're going, if you're like me, you're going like, what? There's some number that are supposed to die before God comes in and judge. It's a notion completely foreign to me. Um, but it wasn't forward to Jews of the first century. There were a lot of Jewish writings from the couple of centuries leading up to Jesus and the first couple of centuries after Jesus that we have. And we have copies of them. We pretty much know what they were. One of them is called First Enoch. Enoch is a character from the book of Genesis. He is the one who... It's not entirely clear that he dies. He just kind of goes off with God somehow, maybe. So, and lived to be a really, really old dude. But um, sometimes First Enoch is called the Apocalypse of Enoch. And you can look it up on the web, I'm sure. I um, have on my shelf a two-volume set of these writings. About three o'clock this afternoon, I was contemplating bringing the volume that has Enoch in it, and then I decided that was eight pounds I didn't need to carry in here. <laughs> that you could imagine in your eyes a book about that big. Okay, so what happens in First Enoch chapter 47? You get this idea that 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 the God returning in the fullness of time means that there is a measured number of days and a measured number of deaths. Which just seems so, it doesn't seem that weird idea. Where would that come from? Maybe it came from a way to wrestle with the oppression and persecution that the, Christ, that, that the Jews had suffered. Because they had been under pagan oppressors for 500 years by the time of Jesus. You know, nearly 600 years um, more than 600 years uh, by the time uh, Revelation is written. But it's, it is an odd idea. It, it's, it's, that's, the best, that's the best I can offer you on that, that little bit, is that it really is one of those places where John is drawing on his world and sort of somewhat almost, almost like folk thoughts. Uh, that the Jews of his day had. They were very much interested in angels. There are very few named angels in the Bible, you get Gabriel, you get Michael. For Jews of the first century, they were angelologists. They had names and hierarchies and rankings and of all this stuff. You know, it's just, you know, it's just what they did. It was a way of, I think, trying to uh, live out their life with God. But anyway, That's the fifth seal. The key to it are the souls of the martyrs under the altar who cry out, how long? And the answer is, well, (laughs) you are going to have to wait a little while longer. So from this point on, all the way through Revelation 11, you are going to be, they're going to be waiting. Okay? And I say Revelation 11 because actually, Revelation could end at the end of chapter 11. It doesn't, but it really could. So anyway, this sense of, yes, it's going to come, but you have to wait a while longer. Verse, 30, verse 12, I watched as he, the Lamb, opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. Any of you ever lived through a bad earthquake? Yeah, a few people have. you know, I have it. I've, I were <laughs> we were out at the MGM Grand one time in Vegas when we saw the, the curtain shifting, right? Just that one, we realized God was saying, "Don't ever do this again." <laughs> 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 so but, but the, the seven, where um, geographically, the seven churches are where? they're in Western Turkey. Turkey's a country which is well-equated with earthquakes. There's a big, a whole stretch across western, across north-central into eastern Turkey in which there's, it's just a big earthquake zone. And so they are well-acquainted with that, and so it would be a well-known symbol of destruction and so forth. And for ancient people, for ancient, they don't know about, like, tectonic plates or rifts, or, you know. Everything, virtually everything that happens happens because God or the gods make it happen. The sun rises, the wind blows from the east, the earthquakes come, your child lived, survives the illness, everything. God is the first cause of nearly everything that happened to people's lives. So, all right, so we've got a big earthquake here. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Well, that is dramatic. Is it not? And you're kinda because you're twenty I when I used to be when I teach this, this is where I would say, Well, you're twentieth century people. But actually now you're twenty first century people. And so what do we do with this? I'm gonna show you what you do with it. Leave a marker there and we're turn to the book of Isaiah in the thirty fourth chapter, at the fourth verse. And I'll just talk over you while you find it. Isaiah 34, verse 4. Isaiah 34, verse 4. 34, 4. Okay, so Isaiah 34 is a chapter about judgment. God's judgment on the nations. Who, have, who don't acknowledge God, who don't worship God, who have rebelled against God, who have persecuted and oppressed God's people. So it's a chapter of judgment. And when judgment comes, it's going to be mighty, and it's going to be cosmic, and it's going to be the creator of the universe exercising His righteous wrath and judgment. So 34.4, this is a... depiction of the arrival of the big day. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall, the withered leaves from the vine like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Clearly John has this Isaiah 34 in mind as he conveys to you what he is experiencing. These are would be well-known Jewish well-known Jewish imagery of the climactic day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's arriving, the day when God shows up to take accounts and so forth. And there we go. The stars in the sky will be dissolved, the heavens rolled up like a scroll. The starry host will fall. Now that seems odd, right? But for them, the stars are lights on the underside of what amounts to be a big roof. That's how it worked. And some of them were bigger and some of them were smaller. You know, greater lights and lesser lights. But that's how they make sense of the cosmos around them. Have you seen the movie The Truman Show? Okay? There we go. Same idea. So the lights are on the underside, and on the other side of where those lights are fastened, are hanging, is God. Okay, so the lights would all fall. That's how they fall down to the earth. So also look at is another famous passage, more famous in Isaiah 34, the book of Joel. Hmm. You're saying to me, is there really a book of Joel? <laughs> It is, it is between the books of Hosea and Amos. <laughs> you mean to tell me there is a book of Amos? <laughs> right? So, so these, these writers, Joel, Amos, Hosea, others, they are what are sadly sometimes called the lesser prophets. They're not lesser prophets in the sense of what they have to say is less important, but their writings are short. And so what the Hebrews did was that all the writings of these 12, shorter, these shorter writings of these 12 prophets were collected on a single scroll. One of the most important one of the most significant reasons why the book count in a Hebrew Bible is different than the book count in your Old Testament, even though they're identical. It's because we divide the 12 up into 12 separate books, the Hebrews had them all on one scroll. Okay, so Joel chapter 2, verse 28. In fact, here in the NIV study Bible, they label this section the day of the Lord, the big day. God's coming. Here it is. Verse 28, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That's dramatic, right? So now, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. and I, I, I just want, So you can see the similarity between what Joel wrote and expressed Right, that God had given him to express and what Isaiah had expressed and this dramatic apocalyptic imagery of big cosmic things happening. How do you talk about the, cosmi- about the arrival of the creator of the cosmos in just regular everyday little language? You can't just do it in regular everyday little language. You have to use big stuff. So they use big stuff. And Acts 2 describes the day of Pentecost. When Jesus' followers are in Jerusalem and they're waiting for something to happen, and then it does. When the Holy Spirit descends, the wind blows in the room, tongues of fire leap from person to person. They rise and each of them is able to speak the good news in a language they don't possibly know. They can't possibly know. And then Peter gets up to preach the first great sermon in the book of Acts. And what does he draw from? Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Joel 2, all the way, baby. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when he goes on, he's going to tell you that all of that arrived in Jesus. That's the point of a sermon. He goes on to say, "This Jesus whom you guys just crucified. But yes, that the great day of the Lord has arrived in Jesus. And you see, it leaves you wondering, well, I don't think the moon turned to blood and the stars fell out of the sky and all that stuff. When, you know, with Jesus' crucifixion or resurrection. So what gives? What gives is that the writers, inspired by God, Use cosmic language to describe, to describe cosmically significant events. How's that? I haven't put it that way before. Use this cosmic language to describe cosmically significant events. There's no bigger event than the arrival of the day of the Lord. And part of the day of the Lord is resurrection. And so Jesus marks the beginning. He, more than the beginning, he marks the arrival of the day of the Lord. He marks the arrival of the kingdom of God, and we still await for it to be in all its fullness, but um, it arrived in Christ. There's no way to read your New Testament, I don't think, and come to any other conclusion. Every New Testament scholar I respect would tell you that the kingdom of God has arrived already, but not yet. This holding these, these present and coming And the present part is what Peter was focused on. Yes, this is the big day, and you missed it because you didn't know he was your Messiah. And so now, in Revelation 6, this is the beginning of it, so boom. There will be this long depiction of the day of the Lord expressed in very dramatic imagery drawn from places like Isaiah, Joel, Ezekiel, other places. But John would never think that there was going to be a come a day when you're going to be standing in your backyard, you know, sipping a margarita, and the sun would turn black like sackcloth and the whole moon turn blood red. He would look at you like he like you had two heads or something. That is a why that's, that, that's not hearing the man well. So, thoughts, questions about that. If you get that, there's a whole lot of this to come. That's why I'm hammering it home. We ran down these references. There's a lot more of this kind of thing coming where John is using all this Old Testament Hebrew imagery to talk about these cosmic events. Scott? Yes? He's using those events because the people of this time knew these. They knew those, those different scriptures. I mean, they lived it. I mean, they knew oh gosh! Well, you, okay. So, Bob is asking. Well, these people, these knew th- they knew their scriptures. If they were Jews, and there, many of these Christians would be Jewish, um, and you're darn right. See, if we knew our scriptures as well as John Wesley would, we'd pick up on every bit of this. But we don't. Our education has been neglected, so we don't see it. So we have to go running it down little piece by little piece, and. But no, in, in those days, the, the Hebrew scrolls were what people lived on. It's how they learned. It's how they were educated. It's, it's they they knew these, and um, and John John obviously does. We, we we've we've always thought Revelations was a coded message of prophecy for us, and actually, it was describing in very detail what these people of this time were living in. This was what, what Bob was said, for those of you who didn't hear it, especially if you're not listening to this on podcast, which, which is exactly right, is that we, particularly in the last 150 years, Christians, particularly in America, have tended to come to see Revelation as a coded message or a coded movie script for us waiting to play out. Right, and so we'll go through it, looking for little clues. And oh, this is the this, this is X, and this is Y, and this is B. How many of you have read *Late Great Planet Earth*? I did back. Then. How many of you read it in all of its editions? <laughs> He's had to rewrite the thing like ten times because stuff changes in the world, and so X becomes Y, and A becomes C, and uh, it's ridiculous. So it, every piece of your Bible means something important for the people to whom it was written, before it means something to you, this is a writing for Christians in John's day. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is written to the believers in Corinth who are actually wrapped up in all the problems that Paul talks about in that letter. We read it a step removed. That's just how it is. We don't live then. And and the, the thing about Revelation is because of its symbolic nature and because you can find, oh, well, this is X and this is Y, so I think we're living in the end times, right? You know, they right now on the web, they' are in time clocks, <laughs> counting down. and they feed off certain clues. I remember when some piece we're going to get to was, that was the common market in Europe. Do you remember the common market in Europe? Yes, yes, yes I remember that. It's gone. So consequently, the secret is to understand that from the beginning until now, people have believed, based upon the symbols and Revelation, that they have lived in the end times. Because that's the nature of symbols. You can make them believe anything you want unless you are willing to try to understand how the first people to whom it was written, what it meant to them. Did you know that in America there were Christians who believed that King George III was the Antichrist? Yes. I don't think they were right. Besides Antichrist, Here's here's a, I won't get to what time is it? Antichrist is a word, I'm pretty sure about this. We're not going to come across it in Revelation. You're not. And it's a word that simply means somebody who is anti Jesus. It's all it is. Shouldn't have a big A put in front of it. It's just it's just people are against Christ. It's all it is. Uh, John, writes, John the Apostle writes about it in his letters, but that that that's all it is. Are there people against Jesus today? Yeah. Have there been people against Jesus for all of the last 2,000 years? Yeah. Have there been people who said they were for Jesus but were actually against Jesus? Yes. It's just how it is. So, good point. All right. So, all of that, that whole deal we just did... Bouncing it back and forth across your Bible, which is always good practice, was about chapters, verses 12, 13, and 14. Right? To go background it again in Revelation 6. Verse 14, The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. Isaiah 34, 4. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Okay? Made plain. Made flat. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty. If you're reading along, you're kind of thinking, okay, well, this is those guys, right? <laughs> Whew, I'm glad. It says those guys. And then it goes on, and everyone else, right? Both slave and free, hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains, they called to the rocks and they said to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Now that's just a little introductory image of humanity hiding from God. And it's just dramatic. Right? I mean, you know, you get the long recitation of who it is and then you realize it's, you know, everybody and they're talking to mountains and rocks and it's very dramatic. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, we're told that God came down in the evening to walk with Adam. And what does Adam do? He hides he hides from God. Why? Because he knows what he's done. He chose against God rather than for God. He chose to rebel against God rather than than embrace God. He's given up that intimacy with God because of his desire to be like God himself, to know what God knows, to be like God. And is that not in large measure, the problem of humanity. We think we know better. I have a book on my shelf. It's kind of dusty by now, probably. I haven't looked at it in a long time. A little book by Alistair McGrath. He is a Christian, he's sort of a Christian apologist. He has, he's, has a doctorate in biochemistry and a doctorate in theology, both from like Oxford or someplace. Brilliant guy. But he titled his little book, Intellectuals Need God Too. Point being that you're not, you can't ever be so smart as to not need God. Everybody needs God. Everybody does. And yet the world runs away from God. And there will be many, many, many dramatic depictions in Revelation of people who run away from God. Who simply shake their fist at God and shake their fist at God and will not will not come to God and will not be faithful. It's, it's, it's a story written over and over. It's a story of Israel, for Pete's sakes. The whole story of the Old Testament is what? Oh, God chose Abraham and his family, and they're going to be ones through whom the whole earth would be rescued. And they proved to be failures. They were suppo- supposed to be the solution to the problem of Adam's sin, and instead they became part of the problem. Wow. So, so, when you're going through Revelation, listen to how it speaks to you in the realities of the world you know. You don't have to make it about some secret code that's waiting, because if you do, you'll miss the message. You'll miss the message. You'll miss God speaking to you through these words if you always make it about a code or something that's going to happen or when's that going to start or we're going to wait, you know, till half the people on the airplane disappear or something like that, which is also that belief which isn't really biblical, isn't from Revelation anyway. So, um, So, yeah. So, with that... I'm not, we're not going to get into chapter seven because it's too cool to start and, not, and then have to stop. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I get worked up over Revelation. I don't know why, but but I do. I do. So, what other kind of thoughts or questions? Before, I, just give us something. Yes, Mona. Are you sure? It's humanity like Groundhog Day. We keep making the same mistakes over and over and over and over, and we don't learn. And why don't we learn? Because there's something wrong with us. And the word we use to denote that something that's wrong with us is sin. That's what we mean by it. It's a lot bigger idea than just oh something I might have done yesterday when I slighted somebody or No. Sin is the darkness, capital S sin is the darkness that plagues the human heart, and which is why Prince Harry will be disappointed until his death if he thinks he's gonna overcome human greed, apathy, and selfishness. I can just I can predict it. I'll make a bet with the man. <laughs> Okay, so anything else? Yes. Charles. Yes. Yes. saying John Charles wonders, what do I what do I think it, is happening with John, the writer of the Apocalypse? He has a vision. He sees the cosmic significance of it all, and he uses the imagery. Here's two ways. He uses the imagery that he knows that the Jews have known from Joel and and Ezekiel and the rest of it, and uses it to convey to us what he sees, or maybe this, I don't know. God uses that language, that imagery, to speak to John. Because we always would need to be spoken to in something we understand. So perhaps God is the one, in John's vision, is, is helping John to experience something that he will interpret using what he has, which is Ezekiel and Habakkuk. And that's why, that's why there's so much Old Testament material in the book of Revelation. I don't know. And it's a way of apocalyptic literature was a way of talking about these cosmic questions of renewal and restoration and judgment. If you look at the second half of Daniel, it's the same kind of stuff. you got monsters and the sea and weird creatures, and it's just how the Jews wrote about these things. And, of course, we believe that that Daniel and... um, the writer of Daniel and the writer of the Revelation were inspired by God to write it this way. And so I see God as the author of these interconnections that we find. How is it? I see God as the one who behind it, who is who is helping us, who has given this stuff to us in a way that it seems incredibly diverse and never has, and what could it have to do one with another, but no. No, it has a lot to do one with another. And so Joel and and Peter uses Joel, so so Acts and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation and Daniel, they're all working out of God's cosmic vocabulary. I don't know. I think that's how I try to understand it. Yes? The martyrs are under... The There, that, that's a pretty high place of are the martyrs? So your question is: Are the martyrs in a special, special place? Yeah, the martyr, the souls of the martyrs are under the very throne of God, which is not only a special place; it's a protected place, right? When you were a kid, did you ever go hide under a bed, or you know, yeah, yeah, sure, we hide in closets from tornadoes and things. So, so yeah, so there's this. Security and safety is part of it too, but they're under the throne room of God, so yes, they are. They are, and John sees them there, right? And as far as I know, that's not something that comes from. He is. He's just describing to you somehow what does it mean to see souls under the altar of God. I don't know. I I mean, I don't know what that. I don't know what that. I mean, if I try to paint it, what would it? What would you do? Because it's not ghosts, it's souls. So, anyway, that's the challenge of Revelation. Anything else? You know, it, it's the part where we were talking about not enough people have died, or there was a certain number of people that were going to die, or... or that, uh, like there was a number to be filled. So like there's a number to be Yes. not that he's just, you know, going to be old enough and survive to the end. He is already at the end, so he already sees the end. So, if that's, well, not enough people. You know, how many more people die, and God can say, "There's many more that will." God, God can God say there, there are them. many more that will, and perhaps God knows exactly what that number is. Well, and God does, in fact, know that because He is already at the end. And yes, and that. your brain starts to blow up because then, how is talking it? Talking how, that's right the paradox, right the eternal becomes in the, in the finite and it doesn't give up that you know, it becomes a very very paradoxical thing yeah and see paradox oftentimes leaves me kind of cold you know it's 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 like you know okay am i am i landing there too soon am i resorting to paradox too quickly so i don't know I, I don't know it's um <laughs> any event revelation will bring up all kinds of things and i just hope in the end you will appreciate it and love it as much as I do. So, will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here tonight, help us to be faithful. To wake up tomorrow, determined, with the help of your Holy Spirit, to walk in Jesus' way just a bit better than we did today. And help us to do that the next day, and the next day, and the next day. For we know that this is the life you have called us to. Help us to know who you are so we don't have to hide from your face. But so that we can stand before you in love and in thanksgiving and in appreciation of all that you have done for us. All this we pray in the great and glorious name of Jesus the Christ, who is the Lamb that is worthy. Amen.